This is the 966 episode 63. Richard, hello. Hey, How are you, sir? 63, good. I'm just laughing because, you know, our pre-recording conversation is good. You know what? We've got, I've got construction next door and you've got an electrician in the house. You're hoping, you know, hoping the power doesn't go out and I'm hoping the pounding doesn't begin. <laughs> to say nothing of our sometimes co-host Coco, who likes to make noise on the <laughs> podcast occasionally from the background. <laughs> um, we should just record the beginning of the conversation before the recording and just have some outtakes for everybody because I think that's true. That would, that would put some uh, rear ends in seats uh, for what we're talking about. <laughs> but um, very interesting. We've got a great episode today, Richard, as you know, Jeffrey Beyer joining us soon to talk about sustainability. He's a sustainability consultant based out of Dubai. So much to talk about in that space. We're also going to talk about all the things going on with TRSDC, the Red Sea Development Company, um, and just so much more in Yella. Richard, before we get started, we always remind everybody to subscribe to us on any podcast platform, excuse me, that you are listening to us on or on YouTube. Uh, Helps us out very much. Numbers are growing very steadily. And I'd like to believe it's because of this reminder at the beginning of the episode. I'm sure it has nothing to do with it. But um, thank you very much for all those who have subscribed already. Richard. I have I have empirical evidence it does have something to do with it. I was just talking with a listener the other day, and they said, you know, that little shout out that Lucian does at the beginning is a good reminder. Uh, <laughs> I'm not I'm not kidding. Honestly, I was going to say, are you kidding? That. <laughs> no, that's not made up. That's that's straight from the street. Nice, um, good. Direct user feedback is always valuable. Awesome. Exactly. Uh, um, Richard, well, let's get started. Got, your, something, uh, something, something is contributing to our you know our our uh, increase in 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 readership and and viewership so anyway mm-hmm. all right uh episode 63 one big thing richard saudi games 2022 for real this time now you you may remember lucian in february i compared the saudi games which were then planned for march of this year to the wilson olympics i don't know if you recall that episode. i do remember that i don't know <laughs> um well the wilson olympics which was like an annual sports of palooza and eating fest that uh, my parents hosted every fourth of july and growing up and you know we had people from uh, through uh, you know neighbors but also all over the region showing up at our house to uh play stupid games and brag about it um uh and it's a fond memory obviously but so this what's happening now is uh march date was quietly pushed back and now the saudi games are on for october 27th to november 7th and so and the official saudi games torch was set in motion back on september 12th starting at the saudi olympic and paralympic committee headquarters in riyadh the torch relay will take it 3500 kilometers through 13 regions and 57 national landmarks before it arrives for opening ceremonies in the king fahad international stadium back in riyadh so this is the largest national sporting event in the kingdom's history with more than 6,000 6, athletes from 200 clubs and 45 sports. The prize pool uh, will be more than 200 million Saudi reals, $53 million. First place clubs uh, receive a million reals, runners-up 350,000 reals, third place participants uh, 100,000 reals. So Lucian, you might want to, um, you know, sharpen up your whatever whatever your skill is taekwondo table tennis squash oh man uh, i don't even know <laughs> it's funny, it's funny it, 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 maybe golf but i'm sure that's not one no. and then i would definitely not win it so <laughs> so but i thought this was particularly interesting the saudi minister of sport and the president of the saudi arabian olympic and paralympic committee prince abdulaziz bin turkey al-faisal said that they 
quote, they reviewed the previous mechanism where the 13 regions competed against one another. Uh, and after a bunch of workshops with national sports federations, they found that many areas will struggle to compete due to the lack of official regional governing bodies to recruit and train athletes for the Saudi games. Therefore, we have identified competition between clubs representing regions and cities across the kingdom as the optimal way to achieve our objectives. And the primary object objective in the Saudi games is to produce new sporting heroes <clears throat> through the elite athletes program launched less than a year ago. It will discover new talents through the Saudi games. So, um, like I said, 45 sports, unfortunately you may recall the traditional card game Balut was originally included, but it's not in these. Um, you have, I've mentioned a few, but even, you know, weightlifting, Muay Thai, beach volleyball, pretty cool. Bowling, billiards, archery, athletics, wrestling, indoor rowing, everything. So organize, organizers held qualifying competitions in 22 individual sports from August 15 to September 10th for amateur athletes. Um, and by the way, a shout out to our good friend, Lena Almaina, who was our second guest mm -hmm. on the 966 and, and she's co-chairman of the Jetta United Sports Club and, she, and and which is the only private sports club to field a women's basketball team for these Saudi games. So exciting stuff. I love this stuff. And 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 we can get into it, but you know this this is an integral part, you know, quality of life, integral part of Vision 2030 to up and promote sports participation and so this first inaugural Saudi Games is the biggest gathering in, in ComFab for sports so it'd be fun to watch. Really an impressive website Richard I'm looking at it right now um, it's really cool and going on to the sports that you mentioned I do see Balut listed here so maybe it's a recent is thing it? that they nixed it yeah um, maybe I just got the, I just got the truncated version awesome Balut yeah Balut which is cool I mean it's it's cool because this is these are the Saudi Games and my brother and I talk all the time about the difference between sports and games and gaming. And it's like, they're all very similar, but like we like to have defense uh, be part of the definition of sports. So like you can prevent your opponent from winning or scoring or whatever. So we like to use that as a sort of qualifier, but there are a lot of cool sports activities, things here, Richard Esports in it as well, as you know, yeah. um, golf is in it. So we've, mentioned golf again on we've got two in a row going after breaking the streak um but there's some cool stuff in here indoor rowing which is interesting um yeah. and sailing is also a one of the games this is cool i mean i mean you got to assume that these a lot of these games or sports were are pretty underdeveloped right now in saudi so just kicking this off and you know developing a industry for these sports is pretty cool um yeah this is this is a really um is this going to be, do you know if it's going to be televised um, in the kingdom or if there's going to be some sort of uh, way to watch what's going on? Oh, good question. Um, I, I see there's some tickets, of the later, so. maybe, yeah, and, and maybe some of the later championships. But yeah, that's the good questions. Um, so we know, I mean, so again, this is sort of a realization of a of, of, of fundamental part of the Saudi Vision 2030. They want to increase community participation in sports by 40% by 2030. Interesting side note. Um, it's, since 2015, Saudi sports federations have increased from 32 to 91 to today. And, um, they're throwing a, a lot of money into, uh, the Olympic committee, Saudi Arabian Olymp Olympic committee last year, November 
pledged $694 million uh, to support these federations. So this is, this is, um, you know, this is a realization of something they started and I, I hope it goes well. And it, 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 if you were talking 6,000, you know, participants, uh, uh, you know, on 20 clubs, clearly it's, it's getting out into the hinterlands and, and uh, I think it's interesting that, you know, they basically, I said, look, there's some regions who simply can't compete as individuals. So let's throw them in as clubs. And uh, they're pushing money to all these clubs. Uh, so I guess we're starting to see results. It's really cool. Kicks off in about a week, it looks like. And there's a lot of development around these games. There's some fan zone stuff. Yeah. Um, you know, community stuff for people to do and hang out and watch the games. This is this is really neat. Um, totally misses Richard this week, but this is the first. They'll have this somewhat frequently um, and it'll build on itself. And, and you know, just like any of these things do over time, um, you know, some of these sports will get very competitive and be rise to the top in Saudi and, and be considered prestigious locally, which puts them into a position to succeed on the international stage, which is cool. So but it, it, it's also, I think, you know, ultimately there, it, it will produce homegrown male and female Saudi um, icons, so to speak, people who are role models, people who uh, you know, young kids aspire to be like. Uh, and it, maybe it's, you know, it's somebody who's really proficient at balut, but I mean, it could be any number of sports. Somebody walks away and really wows the crowd and does extraordinarily well. And all of a sudden they're a, there's someone that is, a, is you can point to as a Saudi and say, that's cool. I'd like to do that. I'm going to participate more in sports. Richard, do you know how to play balut? I think that could be a fun thing to learn how to, to play, <laughs> become a balut hustler. <laughs> I think Act like it, we don't know what we're doing. <laughs> I understand. No, yeah, yeah, you know, I will be taken. Yeah, I understand. Yeah, well, if it's like poker, then I'm, you know, uh, I it's I guess it's, I understand it came over from Egypt originally, and uh, and you know, and so, but I'd like to learn more. Yeah, take my we money, should. Please. We should. We should. Yeah, take my money. We should do a little balut learning session, Richard, and and see where that takes us. Although I um, think gambling is not. You know, gambling is illegal. So uh, it's just true. a friendly yep. game. Yeah, it's just it's just for bragging rights and talking Just for trash. bragging rights. Yep. <laughs> just like poker here. Exactly. <laughs> you can win five bucks off your friends, and it could be five million dollars oh, off your yeah. friends, and you're just talking about winning. So, um, really good one, Richard. My one big thing here um, this week is. A few weeks ago, we shared photos with our viewers on YouTube, especially who are watching from the Red Sea Development Company CEO, John Pagano, who posted them on Twitter. Pagano is, of course, responsible for leading the Red Sea Project's development from the ground up. He's also sort of becoming the face of the project as well. And I'm, I'm going to share them here again, Richard. We'll share them with our, our viewers. Um, and there's a lot more that have come out. What we really saw with those photos is the transition from the area for the area from concept um, and big announcements, big plans, which were huge for Amala and the whole region to actual development. And I think you sometimes see, especially in the region, and Richard, you know this as well, groundbreaking and bulldozers in action. And that doesn't necessarily mean a firm timeline to completion for any project there. It just means it's going. But my one big thing this week, Richard, is the Red Sea Development Company and all the news of late that's coming out. And there's been a lot of it. We're going to go through a little bit of it here. Earlier this summer, Rosewood Hotels said it would open one of its high-end hotels in the area. That's just one of the latest luxury brands to sign on to build in the area. Rosewoods are really, really nice. They're sort of like the banyan tree level of ultra luxury. So just getting that is huge for the 
for the area. This week, Richard, we shared news that emerged from earlier this month um, on susig.com about the new designs for the, quote, world's first fully immersive experiential marine life center, which have been unveiled by the British architecture studio Foster and Partners to be located on the Red Sea coast. This thing is really cool. I'm hoping to time all these things out well, but there will be photos to one side of me. It flips around, so I can't remember, but this museum looks awesome. It looks like a, a coral reef. Um, it's going to be in the Triple Bay Marina in Amala. And according to Foster and Partners, gives tourists, quote, a glimpse into the wonders of the marine environment and the challenges we face to conserve our natural habitats. I'm going to get back to that in a moment. Also this week, Richard, the Red Sea Development Company, confirmed that DAA International would be the operator of the Red Sea International Airport. Uh, this took place in an official ceremony. Um, that airport was also designed by Foster and Partners um, and is going to be sort of a travel hub, not just for that specific resort, but a little bit for the region. And it will be the Middle East's first ever carbon neutral airport, which is cool. Still more news. <laughs> There's actually a few more pieces of news that came out. Um, the Red Sea Development Company announced that it opened its administrative offices this week, uh, located in the co coastal village where employees will live. So it's a huge office building they've built. One of the first things they've finished. Um, accommodates 500 workers, 160-seat um, restaurant, 100-seat auditorium. So just a huge kind of base of operations for them there. And you can kind of see around it, they're still building, but they're like, well, we need to work, so we're going to get this thing up and, and running. Um, another milestone this week, Richard, authorities announced the official opening of the Shura Bridge, which is a just over two-mile-long bridge connecting the Saudi mainland to the hub island of Shura, and then there'll be other islands off of Shura where there will be resorts and things to do and see. All of this development uh, going on keeps the resort and area on track to open by next year, which is amazing. So one big thing this week is just all the things going on uh, for the Red Sea Development Company. And, and um, just really, I mean, if you look at John Pagano's Twitter every week, you'll see a whole new s slate of things that are happening. He's Definitely working hard to get this thing going. That was a good one. And I think Red Sea Development Corporation is a good one to point to because of these of the the Giga projects, it's the one that's it's farthest along. And you're you're right, you know, for example, you had uh, you know, like you had drone footage of, you know, construction on the line that came out this week. And, you know, again, that's so far away from realization, whereas this is not. This is close, and it's attracting really, uh, really some key partners. Like you say, the some a lot of the hospitality companies that are involved are top flight. Um, I also think it's interesting the way they're doing it. Our guest this week uh, is Jeffrey Beyer talking about sustainability. It's a huge aspect of this uh, Red Sea development RSDC, and you know the whole the, the sort of founding principle of of sustainability which is meeting the needs of the present without compromising the ability of future generations to meet their own needs so that's a un definition uh rsdc is taken very much to heart i mean it, a lot of what they talk about is sustainability they're talking about uh regenerative tourism um and it's a it's a it's a big part of i think their sell you know, it's interesting that, you know, we talk about, you know, how do you make sustainability and ESG and, and you know, how do you profit? It, it, from the beginning, it's been a big part of how they presented themselves, right? We're doing this luxury stuff and we're seeing this in the pictures is coming to fruition. And like you say, next year starts out next year, but they're trying to do it in a sustainable manner. 
and trying to do it, you know, when they talk about regenerative tourism is going forward is, you know, not, not damage any of the ecosystem to, you know, uh, attract people to it without ruining, the, you know, what, what the attraction is. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it, it, it's shaping up to be, obviously it's going to be top end, um, much of it, but it's shaping up to be a showcase for uh, an early example of what Saudi Arabia is trying to do in terms of uh, responsibly growing uh, a sector, you know, mm-hmm. tourism. Uh, tourism. I think that's just such a good point and such a good tie in with our guests that we'll be speaking to in just a moment, Jeffrey Beyer. It's really cool, though. It's like part of the attraction of this area and this place and and what's really going to get people to visit. It's not just the high end resorts because there's there's a Rosewood and there's there are Rosewoods elsewhere around the world. It's what you're coming there to be around. And Saudi Arabia seems to understand that. When you're going to visit the Red Sea, they, if they preserve all the other areas around it, especially the nearby coral reefs and the actual Red Sea itself, but also the mountains, then at night you'll have things like really visible stars that you might not be able to see. And it just makes the whole experience better. And that just makes people want to come visit. So it's it's really good for the planet and it's also good PR, but it's a good strategy to actually get people to come visit Saudi and, and have a very unique experience. And that's sort of a theme we've talked about Richard before is, is Saudi Arabia is a really unique place. The red sea development area where they're building this is, you know, pretty much there's nothing really around it. So when you're going there and you're staying at a Rosewood or some really nice place, and then what you look at when you look around is just pure nature, that's really powerful and cool. So yeah. And, and the sustainability element, I mean, there's a lot of, it's expensive to develop sustainably sustainable to develop with sustainability. (laughs) Cat did get my tongue. There's also one in the background here in case anybody (laughs) noticed that's not a sweater. Um, just really cool though. It's like, you know, Richard sees it now. Um, so this was an, this is an investment and we're going to, it's a perfect transition, Richard. I'm so glad you said that. This is a perfect transition to, to move on to Jeffrey Beyer. Cause we talk a lot about sustainability and, and whether or not it's a good investment, a feasible investment for governments and corporations at this point. So let's actually make that transition unless you have a final point here. Um, no, to, no to go to Jeffrey Beyer. Cause he's just great. And this is such a good conversation. So Excellent segue. Well done. Thank you. Well, that was you actually when you said that. I was like, oh, perfect. Yeah, that's what we're going to be talking about this week. Teamwork. This is the the epitome of synergy, working well together. That's right. That's right. (laughs) Here is our conversation with Jeffrey Beyer. We are pleased to be speaking now with Jeffrey Beyer, Managing Director, Zest Associates, a Dubai-based consultancy that develops sustainability solutions for governments and private companies for the low-carbon economy. So much to get to on the topic of sustainability and climate ESG with COP27 and COP28 taking place in the Middle East region. Jeffrey, thank you so much for joining us on the 966. It's a real pleasure to be here, guys. Hi, Jeffrey. Yes, Wayne Lucian. Thanks so much for joining us. And as 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 we've communicated, we're kind of excited about this because I feel like I'm going to class because I don't know, I don't know much about sustainability, and I know you're you're deep into this and have really thought it through. Can you tell us before we launch into the into the initial question a little bit about Zest? Yeah, for sure. So um, I moved to to Dubai uh, a couple of years ago to start Zest Associates. It is a sustainability consultancy um, looking across like climate policy, clean tech innovation, and green finance. So we even bottom out some of those terms in our in our chat. Um, but I look, I work with like governments and, and companies to, to help them develop strategies around how to improve sustainability, you know, advance advance low carbon innovations, and then get those things those things funded. So, so that's what I do. I work with partners. 
I've got a team around the world and it's a really exciting time to be doing this, this type of work. How is business? Is there increasing interest or is already, you know, a great deal of interest? You know what? There's a huge amount of increasing interest. Um, ESG especially, we'll go into that, what that means as well. But um, that's definitely something hot, like a hot topic. But as, as COP28 approaches in the UAE especially, um, there's a huge amount of, of anticipation for that. People really want to understand how they can prepare, what kind of announcements they can make. Um, and, you know, as a country and as a region, I think there's this increasing recognition that the future is sustainable and there's a real need to to diversify and transition into something um, that looks a bit different than, than today's world. So, yeah. Yes, you reference a coming question, the difference between sustainability and ESG. So, but let's let's kick this off. So sustainability, you know, what are we really talking about? We have a UN definition and the UN definition is, quote, meeting the needs of the present without compromising the ability of future generations to meet their own needs, unquote. And we know that it's a front and center topic for many many countries in the region, including uh, Saudi Arabia. There's a there's a, a UNESCO meeting in Paris right now, and, and the opening statement by a very high-level Saudi delegation was all about sustainability. So, Jeffrey, please, what is sustainability? Yeah, it's a good question. And, and Richard, the, the quote, you know, that's like the 1987 Brundtland Report, like, quote, what is sustainable development, right? And it's a really broad definition and it covers a lot of a lot of different dimensions of what sustainability is. So, you know, sustainable development is kind of the broadest sense of sustainability. I'm going to start from the other side just to, to try and describe this really, really clearly um, and be the most narrow I can. So, so like low carbon, I think, is one thing that people talk about. It's really related to climate change and specifically, and it deals specifically with reducing greenhouse gas emissions that cause climate change. So climate change mitigation and low carbon are the same thing. If you mm. expand that climate change question or, or domain to include adaptation, the kind of reverse of mitigation, right? Adaptation is about adapting to the inevitable impacts of climate change. So we know that sea level is going to rise, it's going to get hotter, you know, storms are more severe and frequent, um, fires happen more often. So, so managing that hotter world, that inevitably hotter world, which is coming, um, that's all about adaptation. So if you take mitigation and adaptation together, those two things are the climate conversation, okay? Then you expand one extra dimension and you can include other environmental issues. So forests, biodiversity, soil health, water, all of these things kind of fall into the environment domain. So you've got like low carbon, which is mitigation. You've got climate, which is mitigation and adaptation. Then you have environment, which is, you know, all the climate stuff plus like every other kind of environmental thing you can, you can think of, um, soil, water, biodiversity. That's all under like the environmental banner. If you want to expand it out a little bit further, you can look at, at um, like social and environment, it's like social um, and economic and governance type questions, right? Mm -hmm. So that's where we get into like environment, social and governance, ESG. Um, and that taken together uh, comprises like sustainability and sustainable development. So we've heard about like this triple bottom line, right? Looking at people, planet and profit. People is like the social part, planet's the environment part, profit's the economic part. Um, so, you know, it's a bunch of little nested terms kind of, but you can move from the really specific, which is like climate change mitigation, which is my personal focus all the way up to a full scale like ESG 
um, sustainable development, you know, hitting that definition that, that you talked about at the beginning, Richard. So, so when you look at that UN, the UN agenda, this, there's, there's 17 sustainability goals and you, and, and if you get into them, you're exactly right. There's, there's not only, you know, climate mitigation, but also poverty, hunger, you know, public health. Um, so it is extraordinarily broad. And it's interesting how you broke that down, environment, social, and economic. And I've never heard the people planet profits. I like that. Alliteration is always good for, you know, you know, slow thinkers like myself. <laughs> um, so, uh, so you say you, you, so let's, while we're on the subject, and since you brought it up, brought it up. So I blame this entirely on you, Jeffrey. Um, the difference between sustainability and ESG now, um, can I, you know, a little bit of research. I mean, is it worth me sort of throwing out my understanding of what I've read or let's just jump into your distinct distinction? Well, yeah, I mean, um, feel free, feel free to air your, air, air your thoughts. Uh, uh, no, but I'll just, I'll just jump into it. So listen, ESG is like, it's something that's quite specific to re reporting and like governments or, or companies being able to prepare reports and share and disclose information to, to shareholders and, and people who are investing in, in them. So ESG is really like a, a set of, of rules and criteria that you can measure um, and improve over time to, to make your company more sustainable. It looks at like E, which is environment, S, social, and G, governance things, right? So uh, I reduce emissions or you know reduce the amount of water you use um, in the E component. For the social part, you can look at you know gender diversity in your workforce or you know who's who's there from what different countries like how many different nationalities you employ all kinds of different things in the in the s part in the g part the governance part um you can say like how do we have a policy for anti-bribery and corruption you know how, do, how are we making sure that our company is governed in a way that's, that's really watertight um and those things together if you're managing to get like a really good like balance of your your esg um, criteria, then it means that you've got a relatively sustainable company and, and it should be uh, one that can last for, for a while. Um, there's a lot of like risk around ESG in my opinion. So I think that people have used ESG a lot to compare things that in my opinion don't really compare, right? I think it's difficult to say like, a, like diversity on your board is or can be compared to the emissions that your company produces and that can be compared to like other governance components so like if you have a really good score in your e and you're really falling down in your s like are you a sustainable company i don't know i think i think that esg there may be a role or a, a, a need to kind of break apart some of those letters and focus really on climate change and environment as being something quite distinct from the s and the g part is it fair to say that the esg is is uh largely um, an analysis of a company's efforts to meet these standards. So a corporation and that sustainability, you know, is just one of these pillars for a corporation. So, and to make your distinction, which is that you may be hitting the mark on sustainability, but not on governance or social, or whatever. Um, whereas sustainability, you know, your expertise is, is strictly, and as you say, your focus, especially on the climate side. Um, so ESG becomes sort of an investment framework that helps, external investors assess if a company's meeting its 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 goals or has had goals at all that's right and it also helps the companies assess their own risk to different to different risks so often it's not about like how how badly the company is affecting the environment in terms of the e but it's more the reverse like how much of a risk 
is environmental change to the company. Do you know what I mean? So yeah. it almost flips the the question on its head. And for some time, for some reasons, like that doesn't always mean you're going to get the best the best outcome. You need to protect your assets from flooding. That's an E thing. But like you're not really thinking about how your assets are going to cause flooding by polluting, for example. So right. ESG can be thought of in this almost reverse way. It's about like protecting companies and ex- explaining risk. Um, that, that's what can be thought of. And so uh, I referenced the UNESCO delegation, the Saudi delegation to UNESCO in Paris ongoing. I guess those meetings end tomorrow, the 19th. Tell us a little bit about Saudi Arabia, because it's certainly part of the vocabulary now. I mean, oh, yeah. I mean, P- P- you know, PIF just, just, you know, the public investment uh, fund just issued a $3 billion sort of ESG fund. Uh, so yes, it's part of their dialogue and their investment in the, their vocabulary. Yeah, it's very exciting. I mean, I think the more people that get involved in sustainability, the better, the better it is. And PIF obviously is a huge like, heavyweight uh, in this space. Um, uh, you know, I think that there's a lot of changes that have happened that are making this a lot more accessible to everybody, but also to people in Saudi Arabia. So first of all, you know, from a climate perspective, we're really starting to see the impacts of climate change manifest, right? Over the summertime, we saw these floods in Pakistan. We've seen fires in Australia. We've seen all kinds of issues happening. That's really bringing the fact that climate change is, is real and happening today, not in the distant future. It's really bringing that to the fore. Um, I think we also have this sense that like the global conversations matured a lot, right? There's a lot of political support for, for climate action through the Paris Accord, the, the big UN Accord. Um, people are aware that, that this is going on and they want the governments to take some action. Um, businesses see the commercial opportunity in, in low carbon transition and in um, you know, different uh, investments. I know PIF has invested a lot in, in hydrogen, um, hydrogen trucks, for example, and electric vehicles. They're doing a lot of, of low carbon investments and, and that's because they see that commercial opportunity. Um, I think for Saudi Arabia as well, there's this awareness that um, you know, the oil party isn't gonna last forever. And I think that there's this you know, almost existential recognition that, that we're, you need to use this big chunk of, of cash that we're getting now um, from high oil prices to be able to invest in a, in a transition and economic a pathway that that's going to be long-term sustainable and i think you know these are very elastic markets prices can go up and down and i think that recognizing that there is this whole future economy out there which is sustainable um is one that we really need to like wrap our hands around in order to in order to create this longevity in terms of uh, a prosperous society in, in saudi Jeffrey, you referenced saudi arabia's greater commitment to uh, sustainability and it's certainly part of the vocabulary um, the issue is is really apropos because next month the uh, COP twenty seven starts up Sharm el Sheikh in Egypt, and there seems to be um, a significant amount of energy, or I don't know what's the word, uh, realism, acceptance that uh, these climate challenges are, are genuine and real, and that we're lagging as a globe. Uh, so it, it'll be interesting for me anyway to to see you know, what comes out of those Glasgow meetings for the COP26 in terms of a commitment to say, all right, let's stop talking about amorphous commitments, talk about real commitments, real numbers. What are you going to do? But anyway, where does Saudi Arabia sort of fit in this bigger picture? Yeah, it's a good question. So so Saudi Arabia um, upped their emission reduction target um, substantially, actually. Uh, so they're looking to, to reduce 
I don't know, by almost like 300 megatons a year by, by 2030 emissions. Um, they haven't like set a baseline though, so it's a little bit well, it's a little bit challenging to understand exactly where they're they're measuring from. But nevertheless, a strengthened target is a good is a good thing. Um, and Saudi is also really taking the lead, uh, yeah, with the Saudi Green Initiative and with the Middle East Green Initiative across a number of different fronts. So some of them look at planting like 10 billion trees in Saudi Arabia. Um, obviously, a hugely ambitious program, um, especially for such a, a dry country, but one that is actually I think achievable with the right type of, of mix. Um, and I think what is interesting in Saudi Arabia as well is, is the technology investment and innovation in other low carbon technologies. So we can talk about hydrogen as being an especially important low carbon technology for the future. Uh, and one that I think is going to really transform um, energy markets, energy trade, uh, and give a massive shot in the arm to um, to Saudi Arabia and other other you know big potential producers to to manufacture and export um, uh, green hydrogen and potentially blue hydrogen as well. So I think that yeah the country is really like taking the lead on some of these big some of these really big um, industrial opportunities for for climate change. So one of the things that stumps me and maybe it's a failure of imagination is when I when I hear about these sustainability goals. Um, and they are extensive. And you just talk about any sector in Saudi Arabia. Um, you know, the the you know they're they're moving heavily into EVs, electronic uh, electric vehicles, and they, they have Lucid Motors, they have Heisen Motors. Um, who's working with Aramco? Uh, but even talking about in the in the, in the mine, minerals and mining sector, they they they're showing a real commitment to doing this in a sustainable manner, which. Mm -hmm. I can only assume, and, and uh, to go on down the line, you know, same thing in construction of steel, same thing in the construction of buildings, waste and water. They're talking about trying to, to have, you know, desalination plants that are based entirely on renewable energy. So it's across the board. Um, who pays for this? How does yeah. it get financed? I mean, these are these are good projects, right? And I think the thing that historically people have thought about when they're thinking about financing a green project is that it was going to be something that you do because you care because <laughs> you care about something other than the, the bottom out of line. the goodness of your heart <laughs> but the truth is that like this has been one of the challenges for for um for a lot of sustainable uh, solutions in the past is that you know they delivered on these on these environmental um aspects but didn't have the kind of cost competitiveness that 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 other technologies did and i think that you know, innovation is amazing and we've managed to be able to reduce the cost of these things so that they're not only better performing in terms of their environmental credentials, but actually um, have a, a, you know, as good or better return on investment compared to the, the, old, the old way of doing things. So, so that's, I think, the first thing to, to mention is that, like, you know, these, these projects are really, are really good. They're, they're good. they're good, solid investment decisions um, and they wouldn't be taken if they, if they weren't. Um, in terms of financing more generally, uh, I actually recently did a report on financing a green transition in the Middle East. It was done with the Mohammed bin Rashid School of Government and sponsored by HSBC. And um, we looked at eight countries in the Middle East, so the GCC countries plus Egypt and Iraq, and looked at different financial mechanisms that we could use um, to accelerate green finance. Um, there were like, you know, whatever, six, six uh, enablers. So kind of things that created the macro conditions to allow finance to flow and eight different specific financial tools. So things that could actually raise capital and deploy it into certain areas. 
Um, for Saudi Arabia, um, a couple of the things that really stuck out were one of them was an enabler. So, so creating a, a really solid financing strategy. So that's looking at what the targets and the goals and ambitions of the country were, translating those targets and ambitions into a project pipeline, and then figuring out what kind of financing best matched each project to be able to finance it in the most cost-effective way possible. There's all kinds of different pots of money out there, um, different ways of financing projects through you know, loans, guarantees, project finance, all different ways of, of financing things. Um, and by really lining up that, that project list and matching it with the right type of finance, you can get a really kind of efficient um, uh, flow of finance to turn those ambitions into like a reality of a project pipeline that gets genuinely built. Um, so that's like one, one way to do it is create this financing strategy. I think a couple other things that um, could be done are, uh, first of all, you know, use sovereign wealth funds. And I know you mentioned PIF earlier, they're already quite engaged in this space. Um, I think, you know, sovereign wealth funds always have even further to go and, and there could be um, uh, kind of rules around um, screening. So you can screen any investment that you're going to make against a number of environmental credentials. And if that screening shows that the project is going to have a positive impact on the environment, then you go for it. If it's going to have a negative impact on the environment, then maybe it gets marked down a peg or two in terms of your overall scoring metric when you decide what to invest in. So I think there's ways to structure the investment framework for sovereign wealth funds that can be really effective. Um, I think one other thing just to mention that isn't always super popular uh, uh, anywhere is, is carbon pricing. Um, so, you know, a cap and trade system or a carbon tax. Um, the point of these things, people are often like, oh, but you know, you don't want to, you don't want to charge someone for carbon that's, that will slow down the economy and whatever. But, it, you know, it can be really designed in a way that that returns the capital that's raised from, from carbon taxes, for example, or cap and trade and reinvest it into the economy to be able to get more innovation and, and more kind of low carbon solutions coming out of the country. So you can use like a tax on pollution, essentially, um, to reinvest in, in um, economically productive things. Now, pollution is often a waste product. Um, so if you can reduce that waste and instead invest the money you raise from taxing it into innovation, then you're, you're in a better, much better position at the end. So those are a couple of the things that we looked at around how to kind of level the playing field and, and select the right, the right projects to, to invest in. On that last point, I know Saudi Arabia's established the Middle East Carbon Exchange and, and the rampant criticism about carbon credits and carbon tax and that sort of thing is that it doesn't reflect a real cost and it's largely abused by people who use it. Uh, and, and then maybe that's too much of a blanket statement, but, but a, a significant percentage of, of people are, you know, are, are, are buying or acquiring carbon credits that aren't really, they don't really lead to overall mitigation or net positive mitigation. Is, is, is something like that likely to be part of the conversation at Sharm El Sheikh for the CLP 27 next month? Yeah, I mean, carbon credits are a dicey one. So I'm, I've worked in this space for a while, right? And there's are, there, are, there are different standards around like how robust a carbon credit is. Um, you know, planting a forest, you get a carbon credit. Reducing factory emissions from in, in Namibia, you'll get a carbon credit. So, you know, but building a windmill instead of a gas plant in, in Ghana will also get you a carbon credit. It's, it's sometimes very, very challenging to really identify what's a genuine reduction what's a reduction against like what would have happened in the absence of that action and 
And then what's a reduction that's permanent, right? If you plant a forest and then the forest gets cut down or burns down, then that carbon credit like doesn't exist anymore. So there's an issue around permanence, around um, uh, accountability. They're, they're, they're a tough nut to crack. I think that they have a place for sure. There's a lot of really good projects that are funded through carbon credits. Um, whether I rely on them to you know, solve climate change, definitely not. Um, you know, they, they can, they, they don't always genuinely reduce the current flow of, of emissions into the atmosphere, which is what we ultimately need to do. Um, will it be a topic in, in Shamal Sheikh? Yeah, I don't know. I, I, don't, I don't really think it's going to be a huge topic. These are often regional things that are discussed. So, um, you know, in the EU, for example, there's an emissions trading scheme that's been going on for, you know, 15 years or more. Um, in the US, they've got a, a, a carbon trading scheme as well, right? California has like, hooked up with uh, New York and you have the Western Climate Initiative plus a couple of Canadian provinces. Uh, in China, there's a carbon trading system. So these are more regionally based. I think what the opportunity is for Saudi Arabia and for the Middle East is creating um, a regional carbon trading network that can then link in to these other existing um, frameworks. So because the economic structure in the Middle East is, is not vastly different between each country, you're not gonna get these real benefits, like really cheap emission reductions in Saudi Arabia versus Kuwait, for example. They're, they're kind of reducing emissions from the same types of sources, which means they're gonna be roughly the same price tattoos. The benefit of linking systems is that you can target those cheap and easy reductions in Poland, for example, and trade the expensive reductions in Saudi Arabia and kind of get a financial benefit from from that trade. So you're still reducing emissions, but doing it in a cost-effective way. That's the whole point of, of carbon trading. Can we be sure that that study you mentioned with yeah. HSBC, um, if, if, um, if you can send us the, is it available publicly? Yeah. Yeah. I'll send it to you. No problem. Yeah. 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 So we'll, we'll, it in the... we'll exactly. Sorry, yeah. Lucian. No, no, I'm sorry. I interrupted you. My bad. Yeah. So um, let's talk about CFA 27. It's it's coming up. And as I, as we mentioned, you know, in Sharm el Sheikh in Egypt, starting um, what, November 6th through the 19th. Yeah. Um, so, <laughs> you know, we're talking close to 200 countries are, you know, invested in this. And obviously any number of tertiary and interested parties will be there. So it'll be, <laughs> I hope Sharm el Sheikh can accommodate all the people will be there. So they put them all in a room and they don't put them all in a room, but certainly <laughs> This is a this is a consequential gathering. Uh, what do you expect might be some of the main outcomes? Yeah, it's a good it's a good question. So, I mean, I went to my first COP. It was COP thirteen. So I don't know how long ago that was. Fourteen years ago, I guess. Yeah. Ali, um, they've gotten bigger and more, you know, bigger and bigger every year, and and also just more and more important. And you know, we weren't saying COP and a number before. It wouldn't really have made sense to the layman person but today i think after glasgow last year and the real like public awareness of cop um cop 27 this year is, is going to be a big deal um so just to recap a little what happened last year so at cop 26 we got the um glasgow climate pack and the pact and, and the paris rule book so basically you know at the paris accord everyone agreed to to set targets and this is going to be the right thing to do um, in Glasgow last year, we set the rule book, so everyone kind of is working from the same, singing from the same hymn sheet in some ways. Can I interrupt one second, Jeffrey? Yeah. Sorry. So correct me if I'm wrong. Paris, the, the Paris Accord was 2015, right? Yeah. And 
I, I think at that time there was still, you know, a, a non-zero number of climate deniers, and some of them quite consequential. Um, I think by the time we got to Glasgow last year, twenty-six COP twenty-six, um, there was no more of that. There's really a discussion of what needs to be done, and is this correct? That's right. It was really so the the outcome from Glasgow was around three things. It was like looking at um, a really transparent framework for reporting emissions. So everyone has to report in the same way. Um, they developed common timeframes for emission reduction targets. So before we were kind of starting from different baselines and looking at different targets that kind of harmonize things across the world. And they actually talked about mechanisms and standards for international carbon markets um, at Glasgow as well. So basically like, all the negotiations around how to operate an international climate system were agreed in Glasgow. This year, we've finished with the rules. We, we understand the rules now. Now it's all about implementation. And the COP in in uh, in Egypt is is been called like the Africa COP or the implementation COP um, because we kind of understand what the rules are. And now it's we've set targets, and now it's time to actually implement and hit those targets. So. I think some of the big outcomes that people are going to be looking for is um, are around finance, really. So how do you actually invest in these projects and invest in these targets um, is number one. I think the second thing that's a really big deal, um, but a very thorny issue is something around, it's called loss and damage. And loss and damage deals with kind of like the impacts of climate change that happen to countries that didn't cause the problem, right? So, you know, if there's a big flood in Ghana um, and it's because of climate change, like Ghanaians are, you know, represent a tiny, tiny fraction of, of historic emissions. It's really the rich world in, in a way that is responsible for most of climate change emissions. And this idea that poor countries want to ask rich countries to, to pay for all the losses and damages that they're enduring from the rich country's behavior in the past that's been um, this thorny issue and, and one that Egypt is meant to champion as, as you know, representing the Africa group at the UN. So they really want to try and get you know, wealthier countries to, to open the checkbook and, and pay for, for loss and damage. Um, the challenge is that you know, rich countries are worried about it because they don't want to have to sign a blank check for, for damages that may or may not necessarily have been there particular fault. So it's a very, very thorny issue and, and one that's challenging. Yeah, thorny uh, is a is a polite description, I think. Um, because <laughs> they didn't reach agreement in Glasgow. <clears throat> Perhaps, uh, you know, is is there any sense, any reason to believe they will reach agreement here? I mean, obviously, what, obviously the rich nations, you know, their expectation of what to pay was significantly less than, you know, poorer nations. Um, and, and any reason to think that might change? Um, you know, there's always hope. There's always hope for it. I think that we're going in in a pretty fractious, like international climate anyway, is part of the international uh, situation. So it's, it's, it's going to be a tough cop anyway. Um, in particular, because there's so many energy security concerns, um, globally, and that has a direct relation to emissions. So no, it's going to be a tough one. I think, I think that the difference is though, that you know, the, the COP in Egypt was never really meant to be this milestone COP. Um, milestone COPs happen every 
two or three years. Um, Glasgow was a milestone COP, Paris was a milestone COP, and so will um, COP28 in the UAE next year. Um, and the reason is because there's these kind of rhythm that's been set at the UN level. Uh, there was a rhythm that like Paris was supposed to succeed and that was supposed to be a milestone COP where everyone you know, set their targets. Glasgow was supposed to be a, a COP where everyone agreed to the rule book. And, and next year in the UAE, um, that COP is supposed to be the first global stock take, it's called. So when everyone comes and explains where they're at in terms of hitting their targets that they set uh, a couple of years ago in Glasgow. So every like two or three years, it's kind of a five-year cycle. You've got these milestones and Egypt isn't, isn't a milestone COP. It's, it's kind of an intermediary COP. That's really interesting insight because so coming out of Glasgow, all the countries agreed they had to submit new plans, updated plans. Uh, and I guess thus far, only 20 countries have, have submitted ones. Uh, Saudi Arabia not included in that 20. So I gather, I gather it's like, you know, the, so what you're saying is COP27 was optional. COP28 is mandatory in terms of hitting these marks and actually submitting, you know, plans that you're going to follow and you are committed to. Yeah, that's right. Um, it wasn't supposed to be optional, but um, <laughs> I think we got pretty distracted this year. There was a lot going on this year. <laughs> so, so well, that's interesting. So, tell us about you know Saudi Arabia has a you know hasn't submitted updated plans. What 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 plans do they have on the books now? And you know, I think that was one of the significant things about Glasgow, as a as opposed to Paris. Uh, or preceding ones where where there was a you know Saudi Arabia is part of a, a contingent that that was digging in and saying you know uh, we don't think just you know just a simple reduction of fossil fuels addresses a larger issue and and I think you know they came to uh, you know Glasgow as part of a group and but a particularly notable part of the group. Uh, saying, you know, we need to look at other options, you know, circular carbon economies and other mitigation initiatives that are meaningful in the larger picture. And I, they were largely successful yeah. in in broadening essentially the scope of what's considered mitigation on the part of the, the COP enterprise. Um, so, but where, what, what, are the, what are their commitments to date in terms of mitigation? Yeah, so there is a net zero target um, for 2060. So, most countries said it, if they're going to set a net zero target, have been 2050 as, as the target date. Um, so Saudi Arabia is 10 years later. Um, I think China is too, right? That's right. Yeah. And, and yeah, that's right. So there are, not every country is, is on the 2050 track. Yeah. That is one of them. You know, it's fine. Um, uh, I, don't under, I don't believe there's any intermediary targets. So I don't think... Like typically, I know the UK, for example, has a 2030, a 2035 target, and so on. There's like these intermediate goals. So it'll just be a big reveal in 2050 and 2060 to see if the planet's saved? <laughs> there's different strategies, right? I think some countries um, kind of plan, if, they, if they're going to hit their target and they really want to, some want to just kind of keep increasing and increasing emissions until the very day that they have committed not to and then just shut everything down. And I know... In parts of Australia, for example, that's what's being discussed, and especially like coal exporting um, areas, they kind of want to just ramp up production, keep investing capital, and then the day you have to stop, you just turn off the lights and, and go home. Um, uh, but you know, get as much revenue as you can in the meantime. Obviously, that's the wrong thing to do from a climate perspective, but I think from 
an economic perspective, you could argue, you know, if you think you're isolated, then then that that could be a good idea. Um, uh, honestly, you know, I think that what you mentioned about the circular carbon economy is a really interesting way to approach approach this issue from Saudi Arabia's perspective, and it really brings just to give a bit of sense of what this is. Right, you're looking at um, carbon as being a cycle, which it is naturally. And there are kind of different components. You can reduce carbon by you know, reducing emissions normally. Uh, you can uh, remove carbon from the atmosphere by like planting forests or using technology to suck carbon out of the atmosphere. Um, you can recycle it and, and, um, and you can, what is it? Reduce, remove, and reduce, remove, recycle. And reuse. And, exactly. and you can yeah. reuse. So you can kind of uh, turn carbon back into fuel, for example, by combining CO2 with hydrogen, and you can make like a synthetic fuel, like a jet fuel, right? So you can reuse carbon in this big cycle. So these four things around the circular carbon economy is something that Saudi Arabia has um, has created uh, through its G20 presidency. And I know CAPSARC is very engaged in creating a circular carbon economy tracker. Um, and, and it's a really interesting perspective, actually, and, and one that I think people thought originally was a bit of a a greenwash thing, but when you dig under the details, into the details, there's some real like legitimate uh, high quality thought there. And I think it's something that brings countries like Saudi Arabia into a conversation when so much of the economy is based on fossil fuels and you need to try and square the circle around the resources you have and the future you want. And, and those two things um, don't have to be mutually exclusive uh, when it comes to climate. So, Jeffrey, oh, go ahead. Sorry, sorry. Go fire away. Oh, yeah, if you don't mind. So I was I was going to ask you, Jeffrey, about um, hydrogen. It's a space that Richard and I have talked about a lot on this podcast. Um, Kingdom seeks to become a global supplier of it. It already is a large consumer of hydrogen, but it's gray hydrogen now It's because it's cheap. But blue and green hydrogen costs are coming down, big investments going in. Can you talk to us about the status of hydrogen in Saudi and some of the challenges and opportunities there? Yeah, for sure. Um, this is a great topic. And uh, I actually just released a report a couple of weeks ago, um, again with HSBC um, and with the World Green Economy Organization, looking at priorities to accelerate the hydrogen industry. Um, it was focused on the UAE and the UK, but the, but the lessons are applicable in, in Saudi Arabia as well. Um, first of all, I think it's a really, really exciting space. Um, definitely one that's going to create new industrial opportunities for, for countries like, like Saudi, which have you know, great solar and wind resources, um, the right type of geology for carbon capture and storage to enable blue hydrogen um, and lots of gas. So you've got all the kind of inputs that you need, um, trading relationships, relative proximity to demand centers. There's lots of really good good news stories for, for Saudi Arabia in this space. Um, plus, you know, the uh, aqua power, for example, investing in huge amounts of of um, facilities, um, Neom, Red Sea Development Company, PIF, they're all behind it. So you've got the right kind of um, government architecture behind hydrogen as well. So I think Saudi Arabia is in a very good position. Um, I think that there's a lot of misconceptions around the ultimate prevalence and, and use and tradability of hydrogen as well. So, you know, for me, hydrogen is, it takes a lot of energy to make hydrogen, right? It takes a lot of electricity um, which takes a lot of space to make all the electricity. So hydrogen is a very precious resource. And I think when you look at like where it ought to be used, it should really be focused on these 
sectors and these industries that are really, really hard to decarbonize. For example, um, chemicals, steel, um, uh, you know, aviation, shipping. Exactly. Where in my opinion, it shouldn't be used is in like heating, um, you know, inland waterways. Uh, I think hydrogen cars don't make sense when you have electric vehicles that do the trick. Um, but you know, for, for trains that are long distance and heavy trucks, yeah, I think there's a role, a role for hydrogen there. Um, I think some people really think that it's like a, an everything solution. And for me, it's almost like the industries of last resort, the ones that you really can't decarbonize with electricity or some other ways, then you use hydrogen for it. Um, there's so much to talk about in this space. I don't know if you want to talk about anything specific, like trade routes or who's going to do it. What do you think? Well, definitely share with, with us the report you did. That'll be two reports that we share, but we definitely want to share that with our audience as well. Um, sounds fascinating. Yeah. I mean, trading it is interesting as well because, you know, hydrogen is hard to transport around. Um, and I think that probably what's, what's going to end up happening is if the Saudi Arabia wants to be a big exporter, we're going to need to develop a, a pipeline for, for hydrogen. So a big long pipe either to Europe. Um, I think what's what's very likely and that, which I haven't actually heard a lot in the conversation around this is looking a bit east and looking towards India as a big importer for hydrogen. Um, India doesn't really have that much land to build a lot of renewable energy. Um, to both satisfy its own energy demand plus make all this hydrogen to decarbonize industry for example so i see india as being a very like close like you know physically close um neighbor like geographically um which could really benefit from the huge hydrogen potential that is is in the middle east and in saudi arabia in particular and if you go farther east the the, the only saudi demonstration project in terms of exporting blue hydrogen was to japan yeah um Yes, I think I think there's a lot to be revealed yet with regard to blue hydrogen and uh, green hydrogen. And you know, you speak about the you know the cost they're talking about the Neom Green Hydrogen Initiative, which has Air Products, which is a U.S. company, and Aqua as well. Um, they're talking about four gigawatts of of renewable energy required to power that thing. And um, so, uh, yeah, it's a fascinating play, and I, I suppose. Uh, you know, I, I, I guess my understanding is a lot of time it's, it's transported as ammonia, uh, yeah. which is more easily transported. But, you, you know, the economics of blue and green don't yet make sense. And I think their hope is that it eventually will by the time they're ready to really export in, in volume. And I think a challenge with ammonia, because you're right, that is the, the kind of, you know, most, most straightforward way of exporting hydrogen is, is as this ammonia carrier. But you need to make ammonia first, right? Which means combining hydrogen with nitrogen into ammonia. And then when you get to your destination, you need to either make uh, ammonia straight. Unmake it. Yeah, unmake it. <laughs> unmake it. That takes it's a huge energy impost, right? So you're using a ton of energy to make ammonia, then you're shipping it, then you're using a bunch more energy to break it apart. And by the time you get there, you've lost 70 to 85% of the energy input just yeah. from forming and forming ammonia. So. I don't know. I don't really see that as being a really, I'm, I'm no, people disagree, uh, but I, I, I find it hard to understand how this can be done really. Well, and I, I have to, you know, I'll be interested in that study you mentioned earlier on, on uh, efforts in the region. You mentioned uh, the six UCC states in Iraq and Egypt. Yeah. Um, and the, 
the economics of all of this, so much of this, sustainability. And and I, I'll just be curious because it seems like a reach to me because so many of the things, like Saudi Arabia, what they're doing with hydrogen, for example, or even blue or green, but even carbon capture, these are right now these are lost leaders. And sure. and Saudi Arabia is pushing through because they're able to do it. You know, they have they have the the financial means, they have the political will. Uh, they see it as significant, uh, you know, essential part of their diversification away from fossil fuels. This is kind of a unique case. It's one that Pakistan can't do, Iraq can't do. Yeah, Egypt already has natural gas, but I mean, it, you know. So, I, I, again, these sustainability issues, I, 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 I'll be really interested. I, I think in the big picture, Saudi Arabia sort of sees it. I think they see parallels with the solar and and uh, wind power, land wind power. You know sectors where the technology you see you know uh, markets push technology technologies provide markets and you you have these enormous leaps over a decade yeah. in terms of efficiency and cost and and you know levelized cost of energy and so on and so forth and so saudi arabia in some ways is is taking this on others are too there's plenty of hydrogen products in all over the world but everyone's i think is sort of banking on the technological advances significant technological advances Either in the carbon capture for that, you know, for the for the blue hydrogen, or uh, you know, the electro electro electrolyzers in and other technologies for for high, you know green hydrogen. Um, it's a, it's kind of a race. It's kind of a race. It's kind of fascinating to watch. Oh, big time! And and you're right to mention um, solar and wind. I mean, solar prices have fallen in ten years by like ninety two percent, right? So. Wind fifty six percent. Its batteries are on this like nosedive trajectory in terms of their cost as well. And I think that it's one of the things that's really consistently underappreciated. And I remember I don't know if you know Irina, right? The International Renewable Energy Agency um, and the International Energy Agency actually they put out kind of forecasts for how much solar would be deployed and what the cost would be. And like every year. They were way off, I, the IEA, way off. They way under bet on, on how much um, solar would, would take off. And every year the cost fell way faster than they thought <laughs> and way more was produced than they thought. And I think that we're going to be in a similar type of kind of race to the top for, for innovation and cost reductions for hydrogen as well. If you look at the US, the Inflation Reduction Act is pouring billions into this you know, technology plus many others. Um, you know, once you get the innovative capacity of Americans like up and running, like <laughs> watch out, you know, they, they're going to do an amazing job. And the fact that China's on board building the biggest electrolyzers in the world, you know, the energy security situation has made Europe double its demand expectations by 2030. Everyone's really piling in. And the same thing happened when we were trying to get a vaccine, like, you know, people really globally put their mind and effort towards this type of innovation. And I think you'll see really incredible things come out of it really quickly. Jeffrey, I've got, let me, Richard, if I may, just one quick question at the end here, because I, I wanted to ask this earlier, um, and it, I don't think we need to spend too much time on it, but I've seen a lot recently the phrase climate reparations um, with developing countries like Pakistan looking for money from rich countries to sort of compensate them for, you know, suffering the, um, you know, the, the problems of climate change. It seems to me like this is a sticking, like a like a sticking point. Things like this are going to start coming up in these COP uh, discussions. Can you talk a little bit about that? And like, is it you know, is that realistic? Um, is that uh, is that going to happen? Um, is it something that's going to hold up the conversation at COP? I and mean, what do you think about that? 
Yeah, it is a very, very challenging. So reparations, this is the same thing as um, loss and damage, which I, which I mentioned mm -hmm. briefly earlier. You're right. You know what? It's, it's, um, it's a tough one to, to really crack. And, and I don't know how, how it's going to go forward. I think it could be a real sticking point, actually, because you know, these UN conferences rely on consensus. Everyone has to agree. Um, and for so long, developing countries have been asking for, for transfers of, of money, right? There was a promise to do $100 billion a year. Um, I think last year there was like $83 billion a year, but you know, governments can relabel money that's already been spent. And, you know, it's very, very challenging to know whether or not these transfers of wealth are happening. You know, developing countries want grants, developed countries want to give loans that are repaid. Um, so there's all of these challenges around, around the money. Um, and, <laughs> you know, coming off of, especially coming out of COVID and then we're looking at energy price supports, like we've just mobilized like trillions of, of dollars globally in these two circumstances. So I think that the idea that a hundred billion here and there, like is an impossible sum has kind of lost its, its reality. Cause you know, you look and countries have mobilized 10 times that much, um, to manage COVID and, and the world hasn't fallen apart. So, and um, yeah, you know, we're, we're we're anticipating a global downturn in a big way as well. Yeah, it's, it'll be a hard sell. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a hard sell. But um, I hope I really hope it doesn't derail things because we need this. We need these these conferences to succeed. Uh, if you've got any kind of hope for uh, for global action on on these issues, for sure. Jeffrey Beyer, managing director of Zest Associates, a Dubai-based consultancy. Jeffrey, this was awesome. Thank you so much, Richard. I think we found our sustainability expert for the 966. Well, well done, Jeffrey. It was nice to go to school, I, yep. you know, and understand it a little bit better and see where we are. I'm not sure. I'm not sure there's more something more definitive that we're at a definitive place, but I understand it better. And, and uh, you know, obviously it's critical to our future. Very good. Thank you, Lucien. Thank you, Richard. That was our conversation with Jeffrey Beyer. You can listen to these conversations or any segments on YouTube if you just want one piece of the delicious 966 pie that we're serving up here. But if you want the whole pie in the audio version, um, that's where most of our audience is right now is in the audio listening segment. So you can listen to the full episode on podcasts platform, but individual segments are on YouTube. So if you want to just see that interview or other interviews we've done, check it out there. Richard, what do you think? I like that analogy. Yellow. Saudi in a minute. Saudi in a minute. <laughs> I like that pie analogy. The problem is there's nine segments to every episode. So we yeah. got to cut the pie weird, which does make sense because there's long segments and there's short segments. So well, I guess that makes sense. And it really broadens our audience, Richard. A lot of the people that are come to listen to us talk about golf, which we do know a decent amount about, are not necessarily sticking around for other segments, and that's okay. And then likewise, people that are interested in listening to the national development strategy that just released, which we'll talk about in a minute, may not want to talk hear us talk about golf, and we want to make as many people happy as we can. So... But they might want to talk about and hear about our first hour this week, which is Qatar World Cup ticket sales near $3 million. Ticket sales for the Soccer World Cup are approaching the $3 million mark ahead of the tournament kicking off in Qatar on November 20th. FIFA President Gianni Infantino and event organizers said on Monday, the top 10 person purchasing countries of the 2.89 million tickets sold so far, and that number is going up, are Qatar, 
the U.S., Saudi Arabia, England, Mexico, the UAE, Argentina. That's a good effort by Argentina. France, Brazil, and Germany. FIFA's World Cup chief operating uh, officer, uh, Colin Smith, told a, new, told a news conference in Doha recently. I got a buddy that goes to every World Cup. He's uh, from Colombia, and it's like a thing that he and his friends do. And it's it's really crazy because the last one was in Russia, um, and this <laughs> one's in Qatar, and he's going. Um, it's been quite the journey for Qatar since winning the bid in 2010. Dealt with a lot of headaches, corruption, allegations, mm-hmm. claims of, quote, buying the World Cup. We all remember that. Treatment of migrant workers has also been in the spotlight. The timing of the event in the summer versus winter whether or not they're going to serve alcohol, whether or not they can finish these stadiums on time, if the stadiums are going to be air-conditioned on the outside. I mean, there's there has been so much. And the only point that I want to make here, it's cool that it seems like it's going to be coming off well. Good for Qatar. I think that if Saudi Arabia is bidding for the World Cup in 2030, there's a lot of lessons learned here just by looking over to your neighbor and, and seeing some mistakes and some steps they made that maybe won't be repeated. So very interesting and, and good for Qatar. That's a good wrap up because it's a lot's in the balance for Qatar and it could go wrong, go right, mm-hmm. could go wrong. I mean, you know, there's obviously there's human rights issues. There's people, for example, the Danish team is going to wear black in support of, of labor, you know, the labor situation in Saudi Arabia. Mm-hmm. Eight of the European Union EU teams are going to have uh, sort of, sort of uh, rainbow LGBTQ something on their jerseys in support of and you know the question is 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 how will all this play out during this this you know FIFA World Cup and you know uh, you know you've got you've got what 1.2 million people going to be in coming for all this you've got 64 matches uh, uh, you know you've got people who are going to want to drink you're going to have people who are want to be openly uh, you know uh, displaying alternative lifestyles uh, it's a lot of things, you know, at the at the granular level, could go wonky, and you know how that'll be covered by the the press. Mm-hmm. So they They'll have focus put, only on that. Yeah, I mean, yeah. And so this is going to be a fascinating thing, and I think you're right. You know, Saudi Arabia is watching closely to see what the takeaway is and how to how to maybe avoid these things if they do, in fact, get the 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 go ahead to host a, a FIFA World Cup. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, some people helping out. It was interesting. UK, <laughs> UK banned over thirteen hundred people from even trying to go to the FIFA because they're you know known hooligans and that sort of thing. But um, <laughs> so, so, but you know, it you know, it's going to be interesting for the whole region. Thousands of fans are going to be staying in neighboring countries. Uh, you know, they're going to be trying to get there. You know, the housing is going to be a, a challenge. Uh, security is going to be a challenge. I think it was interesting. And, and there's a, um, you know, Qatar has, has invited security forces from Turkey, Pakistan, Morocco, and Britain, as well as advisors from the FBI and France to bolster its capabilities. And it's also, you know, trying to lock down a cybersecurity situation. This is a, this is, you know, after, after, you know, close to a decade of, of preparation, here it comes. It's here and mm-hmm. it's make or break. And, and hopefully it'll go, you know, with as few incidents as possible and <clears throat> Qatar will get what it wants out of it. 
And, uh, but as you say, there's a, it's fraught and there's a lot of issues just in, into the run up, much less just the actual execution of it. And it, it was a really, it is a really expensive, um, undertaking. I don't, I don't have a price tag in front of me, but it's gotta be just astronomical uh, aside from any alleged, uh, briberies that were paid to get it in the first place. But, right. um, I mean, it's just, and then you have these stadiums that are, that will be there. You have this housing that will be there. They're hoping that this sort of creates a new industry. And, and we've seen some reports, Richard, uh, recently from places like Knight Frank and other, um, real estate um, consultancies and advisors that sort of have talked about the impact of this just on Qatar and, and hotels and everything. So just really interesting. Yeah. Um, go United States. Um, let's see some, see some victories here Boy, from the U S I hope they, I hope they can catch lightning in a bottle because they've displayed actually nothing that would suggest that they're going to have a run, but sure. I absolutely hope so. <laughs> I'm just surprised they're in it, to be honest. Yeah, so. well, it's true. I'm glad, just glad to be here. <laughs> just glad to be here. <laughs> Yella number two, U.S. officials are not invited to Saudi Arabia's Davos in the desert. The organizers of Saudi Arabia's investment conference known as, quote, Davos in the desert, the future investment initiative in its sixth edition, said they will not invite U.S. government officials in a major department in a major departure from previous years, which comes amid rising tensions between DC and Riyadh. The Future Investment Initiative, um, it's a three-day conference set to begin on the 25th of October next week, typically draws Wall Street titans, high-ranking officials from around the world, and up to 400 American CEOs. Um, and this was made after a statement from Richard Adias, who's CEO of the group behind the event. And Lucian Ziegler will be there. I will be there at Davos in the desert. So, yeah, so I'm the, I, that, I don't should have been the, included in the blur. They should have, it should have been, yeah, right behind American CEOs and Wall Street <laughs> Titans. Lucian Ziegler. Exactly. I will be there. Hit me up. I think you're... that was an original quote. We'll check with Richard Atias, but I'm quite certain. <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't know how to read this. I mean, this is a larger question. And, and there's two parts of this. I mean, Atias said, actually, in a previous sort of interview he said they're going to be have 12 ministers of economy and finance and 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 but <clears throat> the fact is so the the opec plus decision came down in op, uh, october 5 the subsequent brouhaha and, and firestorm and blow up that is ongoing i mean realistically if you're if you're inviting government officials the invitation has to go out much sooner than that so he may be spot on. They may have decided, all right, let's not go too heavily political. Because if if you're a, if you're a, 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 a you know deputy uh, secretary of the treasury or whatever, you're going to have to get an invitation. You're going to have to clear it through the proper channels, and you're going to have to get the go okay to go, and so on and so forth. And and again, that that has to show up. You know, that's not going to show up twenty days in advance of the event. Um. So I don't know how to read this, but in some ways it, it it's hardly matters. I mean, the <clears throat> the bigger issue is the lack of trust and communication between the the the, the leadership right now. I think you know the the Biden trip in July, in my opinion, was not about oil. It was not about anything. It was simply a, a a diplomatic effort to reset the relationship and begin anew and start to try and build some trust. Um, because it's an important relationship and, and I think it was the right thing to do. And I don't think, you know, the, the quote unquote lack of deliverables, deliverables really it, it matters because I think 
you know, President Biden made a diplomatic choice to say this is a key relationship that is foundering and in, in, in not in no small part because of what some things I've said about the crown prince. Let's go see if we can get it right and headed in, in the correct direction. Um, clearly, you know, it, there wasn't enough trust um, at that OPEC plus decision uh, to come out with a better result, a less uh, controversial result. And, but it, it's wrapped up into a, so many different things. I mean, Saudi Arabia is saying this is strictly an economic decision. Um, obviously we know in the U S that, uh, that, uh, this is seen as a political move in support of, of, of Russia and a direct slap in the face of the United States. It's, it's, I think it's neither one of those. Um, uh, I, I think it's a sort of a referendum on the relationship in that it's changing and adjustments haven't been made. Saudi Arabia no longer wants to be told what to do by this, the U S, um, you know, it sees itself as a, a middle power. You know, it's you know, it's it's it, it, it sees itself as a you know 18th ranked GDP in the in the world. You know, and and sniffing at getting into the top 15. Obviously, the largest oil exporter in the world with the the largest reserves and um, surplus capacity. Obviously, you know, huge role in the Islamic world. I mean, all these things we know, but it wants to be seen as as more of a a. a global player and one that can balance between Russia, China, and the U.S. And if there were more trust in the relationship, um, what would have happened, in my opinion, is is uh, the Biden administration might have come and say, look, this is problematic. You know, you guys are already three plus million barrels short of your quotas. You're not hitting them. Can you not, can you not go so hard on this? And <clears throat> Saudi Arabia might have said, okay, look, we're coming back in 60 days on December 5th for another meeting. You know, we'll do a million now, but I'm telling you, we're doing a million in December too. So it's going to be 2 million by December. So, so <clears throat> I guess what I'm saying is, is this, this is a consequence of a relationship that needs more trust and more communication and, and needs more time. I don't think it undermines the, the fundamental reasons for the relationship. I think, you know, it's the political season in the U.S. Obviously, the many, many Democrats in particular are up in arms about this. Um, I'm trusting that President Biden will, uh, you know, cooler heads will prevail and nothing too radical will be done. 15 million barrels were just released from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. Uh, you know, it's it's not going to make much difference. The, the reality is, is Saudi Arabia may have been right on this economic reading you know the price has not budged in in the two weeks since i mean mm -hmm. it's it stayed about the same <clears throat> um we continue to get more dreary and dire news about the the global economy in 2023 so and, and on on our side as i said i've said before lucian and we've talked about this i'm sort of hoping this sort of goes away because congress is not in session um you know by the time they come back uh, in January or when, you know, when, when movement, actual movement might be made that the house is probably flipped. Uh, Senate will be, we don't know, but you know, you, the, the impetus for this, especially if, if, if oil prices stay level, you know, will, will go away. But again, the, the, the we're in this situation because of lack of trust and communication and it would have been nice um, maybe to give it more time, but there's a lot of things that that 
sort of manifests itself in this decision that are not only particular to the situation, but also broader relationship. Saudi Arabia wants to change its relationship with the U.S. U.S. is, has, you know, not quite caught up in terms of what they think, what, what Saudi Arabia thinks it needs. So it's a, it's a work in progress, but, you know, during this political season, you know, these sorts of things get blown into uh, huge, huge affairs. Mm-hmm. American election cycles and American election years are extremely messy and should be avoided if you can't avoid them because they just really are completely unknown things that are, I mean, just, it's very messy. So um, I think this is sort of, Richard, I'm glad we included it. I I think it's sort of a non-story. I think that this is just, he said, she said about scheduling and Really, the FII is not about making it a political bilateral, you know, summit. It's it's really about investment, and the attendees are all, in, you know, mostly invest investment officials, uh, bankers, Wall Street people. I mean, it's it's not like a high level G to G summit. And, and but I mean, in the past, there have been representatives from the U from the U.S. government um, from Washington. Just sort of think this is not a huge issue, really. And I think it's sort of he said, she said, and and you know, really. You know, this is just one thing where it's going to, you know, make a lot of headlines and, and, you know, the U.S. will say, well, we weren't invited or we didn't we wouldn't have gone, you know, whatever. I mean, yeah, I, I think that the oil thing is is uh, I think you wrapped it up pretty well. It's it's tough. Um, well, but- it, 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 I, sorry to interrupt. I agree. It is a non story, except in this context, you know, in a diplomatic relationship where there's was better communication, more trust, which is something they hope to achieve. This is a non story. Nobody cares. Yeah. But in this heated environment, you know, it becomes a thing, which is why we included it. I mean, in my yeah. little discourse on my little discourse is simply because this, you know, factoid in and of itself is not meaningful. But when you've mm-hmm. seen in the current larger environment, which is which is dysfunctional at the moment, the relationship is not overall dysfunctional, but the diplomatic relationship is not where it needs to be. And that's why you have these these. Uh, misunderstandings and blowups and and misreads, mm-hmm. you know, and you have the sort of the media, and I, I I loathe to talk about the media, but the media is sort of asking some of these CEOs like, hey, in the in the light of this you know oil decision, are you still going to some of these speakers? And they're just saying yes. Why wouldn't we? Why wouldn't we go? We yeah, don't want to get caught exactly. up in this. So yeah. you know, so you know, you, yeah, you, no, I, yeah. I, when I said non-story, I didn't mean like a non-story. It just seems like. You know, but okay. I agree with you. It's it, it is a non-story. It should be a non-story, but it can't be a non-story because the larger environment is so fraught right now. Mm-hmm. And if you're looking to understand it from the outside, I mean, it it can be as simple as for Democrats, this is just a very obvious way to make Saudi Arabia responsible for high gas prices instead of anybody else. So you're provided with a convenient excuse on this. So. I, it's expected that Democrats would say, yep, Saudi Arabia is the one and just repeat it. We're going to take measures against Saudi Arabia for this because they're the ones responsible. They want voters to know that or to think that that's just the reality. So, yeah, American yeah. elections, messy. Yeah, it is. Number three and somewhat related, uh, hmm. Saudi Crown Prince announces $400 million in humanitarian aid for Ukraine. Saudi Arabia's Crown Prince bin Salman, Mohammed bin Salman has announced $400 million in humanitarian aid for the Ukraine. Uh, the SPA news agency reported it followed a phone call between the Crown Prince and Pre- President Zelensky, uh, where the Crown Prince emphasized, quote, the kingdom's position of supporting everything that will contribute to de-escalation and the kingdom's readiness to continue the efforts of mediation, unquote. 
Um, the humanitarian aid package for Ukraine will contribute to alleviating the suffering of Ukrainian citizens in the wake of the Russia-Ukraine conflict. I'm glad we have this, Richard. There's Saudi Arabia actually has pretty good relations with Ukraine. I mean, the the narrative of Saudi Arabia siding with Russia and supporting Russia in this war because of the oil price decision is just it doesn't seem connected to reality. I mean, Saudi Arabia has voted at the UN um, to preserve the territorial integrity of Ukraine. Um, we just mentioned it, $400 million in support. Uh, Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman and the Saudi government also uh, brokered a prisoner exchange and flew some, including two Americans, to Riyadh. I mean, there's it's not like they're just sort of like, hey, this is, you know, they're, they're supporting Ukraine in this, in this and, and supporting the uh, cessation of uh, of fighting. So, I mean, I don't know. Yeah. They had given 10 million previously. And you're right. They just they just voted uh, yes on a, on a UN censure of, of Russia for annexing those four territories in Ukraine. Yeah, it's it's just not as simple as people want to portray it. Mm -hmm. um, Nobody, uh, you know, the, the 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 Saudi Arabian GCC and other states, nobody wants to see this kind of illegal incursion that Russia executed. Um, but then again, uh, you, you know, Saudi Arabia has to look to its economic future, which is why they do take measures to make sure Russia stays in OPEC plus. So it's it's a balancing act. And as we said in the previous Yala, you know, if 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 the relationship were uh, in a better place diplomatically in terms of communication, it could have been finessed uh, where Saudi Arabia got the necessary, what he thinks is necessary reduction in the quota in terms it, it, to meet the, the, you know, shrinking global economy. Um, and the U S you know, might've, but the Biden administration might've felt like it wasn't a, a, a political uh, handicap in terms of inflation and so on and so forth. Anyway, so again, all these things are wrapped up in bigger things. It doesn't change the fact that Saudi Arabia doesn't condone, condone you know, Russia's invasion. Um, and, you know, it's it, it wants to help out uh, Ukraine. And as you say, the relationship in the case of that prisoner swap, uh, uh, you know, as, as an intermediary, it was an example where that Saudi relationship uh, was useful. And by the way, UAE has now stepped up and say, we'd like to, you know, we'll, we'll happen to moderate uh, you know, discussions in some way to, to find a peaceful solution or a political solution to the war. You know, some of it's posturing, some of it's, some of it's true, but in any case, uh, mm -hmm. the reason we did these two back to back is just simply that, you know, it's, it, it's, you know, the, the issue of us Saudi relationships and, and, uh, the number of barrels OPEC plus is, has on its quota is it's much more complex than just, you know, why you why you treat me so bad mm -hmm. why are you supporting high gas why do you want gas prices to be high ahead of the election it's like uh <laughs> so interesting times richard very interesting times um yellow number four saudi arabia's crown prince mohammed bin salman launched the national strategy for industry which aims to promote industry and attract investment leading to economic diversification and growth of non-oil exports and gdp the national strategy for industry will increase growth in the sector, bringing the number of factories to about 36,000 by 2035. The strategy focuses on 12 subsector sub whoa, 12 <laughs> subsectors, excuse me, to diversify the industrial economy in the kingdom while identifying more than 800 investment opportunities worth 
a staggering $266 billion, beginning a new chapter of sustainable growth for the sector. It seeks to achieve ambitious economic returns for the kingdom by 2030, including increasing industrial GDP threefold and doubling the value of industrial exports to reach $148.5 billion. Well, I don't think I don't have much to add here. I mean, this is uh, last week we did a yellow on the industrial production index in Saudi and that it had uh, hit some new highs. And I guess that's, you know, that IPI industrial production index has averaged 2.51% from 63, 1963 to 2022, reached an all time high of 26.7% this last April. It's dropped a little bit last, last few months. Um, but it's heading in the right direction. And, um, you know, this is this is intended to um, to sort of uh, supercharge it and keep it going. This is a key part, obviously, as we know, uh, in diversifying the the Saudi economy and Vision Twenty Thirty. Um, and it, again, we'll see. This, you know, these are grand plans, and they're going to put some money into it, obviously. And they've identified their subsectors. It seems like it's it it makes sense as they keep marching along into another sector, another sector, and it, and, and and if you look at the bigger picture, it seems to me. Increasingly, they're moving it so there's 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 greater uh, incentives uh, for the private sector to get involved, which is fundamental to the success of the larger project. So, um, you know, again, a big announcement. We'll be watching closely to see how it grows. The news is really the announcement. I mean, I, I haven't seen a lot of stuff. Richard, you included a, a piece today from a shark al asset that had some more details about this, but this is it's. These are big numbers, and it's going to be interesting to see more details come out in the coming weeks. But yeah, this is—I mean, this is this follows on to what they've been trying to do. So, yeah, very interesting. Uh, yellow number five. Five. <laughs> Making waves and skirting sharks. Miriam bin Laden on her Saudi Arabia Egypt swim. Saudi endurance swimmer Miriam bin Laden has made history again, this time as the first woman and the first Arab to swim from Saudi Arabia's Tehran Island to Sharm el-Sheikh in Egypt. Bin Laden, a dentist and advocate for Syrian refugees, joined fellow endurance swimmer and UN patron of the oceans, Louis Pugh, in the coral swim event in the Red Sea. They were aiming to bring attention to the devastating effects of climate change on coral reefs ahead of COP27, which starts next month, November 8th. Which, by the way, will be part of the discussion that we had with uh, with um, Jeffrey Beyer on sustainability. Mm -hmm. So, if you're listening to the segments and you're you're not you didn't get the whole episode, go listen to that conversation because that was just so good. Um, mm -hmm. Richard, uh, Doctor Miriam Bin Laden is a really interesting person. Really created a nice deep dive for me on the internet. Um, <laughs> she's you a, keep going. <laughs> that's right. Well, she she's a dentist. Um, she's been doing this sort of she's been she's a swimmer and she's swam the english channel she um she's been uh devoted her life in support of syrian refugees i mean the, the last name itself osama bin laden was one of her 57 uncles but she's sort of been saddled by the last name a little bit in her life i mean you know what do you do and and you so sort of own it she has a documentary made about her and she discusses that a little bit and how that has changed you know her life and what she wants to do to sort of you know restore her name and her family name which is a very prominent name in, in saudi arabia so just i mean this is it's just a really cool story and and um we'd love to have her richard on this podcast she would be really interesting to talk to
I'm going to reach out to her. Absolutely. Because she's doing this to help Syrian refugees and she's um, the proceeds go to uh, Al-Azraq refugee camp in Jordan, which houses more than 55,000 refugees. She's done a lot of things. Like you said, for uh, first GCC woman to swim the English channel, first Arab woman to <clears throat> complete the Hellespont swim in Turkey. First woman ever to swim the uh, full length of the river Thames. And uh, also first to swim the, the Dubai Creek and Dubai water canal. Um, so she's really put this talent and this skill for endurance swimming to good use. Quite an interesting thing. And this, by the way, uh, I, if, um, you know, for those of you that get our Sustig review yesterday's uh, edition had this piece on <clears throat> Dr. Bin Laden, Dr. Miriam Bin Laden, but it also, as a related, had uh, Instagram video of her swimming with with uh, with Lewis Pugh. It was really cool to see them swimming, you know, in the Red Sea and some of the things you had to deal with and 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 why they were doing it and why Lewis Pugh went and asked her to do it with him because he he talks glowingly about her. Um, anyway, I, I like this story. So this was fun to do. Dr. Miriam, join us on the 966. Yes, you're yes. Watching us. Um, yellow number six, Richard. Saudi Arabia to host the WTTC Global Summit next month. The 22nd World Travel and Tourism's Global Summit is set to take place in Riyadh from the 28th of November to the 1st of December this, this year, 2022. The event will host industry leaders and key government representatives with the goal of driving support for the travel and tourism sector's ongoing recovery, moving it to a safer, more resilient, inclusive, and sustainable future, according to the WTTC. The event will include a lineup of speakers, including Arnold Donald, chair of the World Travel and Tourism Council, and Ahmed Al-Khatib, Minister of Tourism for Saudi Arabia. Richard, two names that I had no problem pronouncing. You, you killed it. I killed it. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah, you know, we like those Western names, Arnold Donald. That Arnold Don that. Donald is actually kind of tough. It's, <laughs> if you say it five times in a row, it's a lot. <laughs> um, I think that this was included. I thought, you know, Saudi Arabia for the longest time is back on the seal, sort of defending itself and always, you know, in a defensive crouch. And, you know, uh, for some time now, at least since 2016, but I think as they, they, they see what their goals are and they're going out to get them, they look at these platforms, these governing bodies, the, you know, the world, uh, this group, the World Travel and Tourism uh, Council is the most prominent and important of its kind. It's got 140 top CEOs. Uh, I mean, top CEOs from from over 140 of the world's leading travel and tourism companies. This will be this will be the first summit held in, in Saudi Arabia, obviously. But the WTTC is a big deal. And I, I was started in the 80s. Uh, American Express CEO was a big guy. Interestingly enough, the reason they sort of went and established the WCT officially in 1990 was because Henry Kissinger came to them and said, look, you know, travel tourism industry is not recognized enough for what it, what it does for the global economy. You should guys should go, you know, form an organization and go ahead. So, you know, it, it's a big deal. And we've talked, we did um we did a piece on uh, travel, you know, what the segment of travel and tourism is of the global economy. And it's, it's, it's stunning. Um, 
WTC talks about is, you know, the global economy has 284 million jobs generating 9.8% of global GDP, almost 10% of global GDP of tourism. So Saudi Arabia, great. You know, say not only are they going to go and be part of this governing, it's not a governing body, but this important advocacy group, we're going to go, we're going to be active members and we're going to host meetings. You know, just they're full, you know throwing themselves full on into it, and uh, I think it's great. I just uh, also, you know, we should all take a moment, you know, to to recognize that the sort of leading travel and tourism body is holding its summit in Riyadh. Says a lot. Mm-hmm. It's just such a huge sector. It's so um, shouldn't use the word so because I've been using it a lot, but it's it's. You know, the the changes happening with travel and tourism globally is uh, kind of hard to wrap your head around. I mean, we had the pandemic and now we have, you know, developments and, and um, you know, new changes in how we get around. And there's a lot more of that coming in the next couple of decades. And as you said, I mean, 10% of the of global GDP, just staggering. And so just really interesting. Um, Richard, we've got uh, Riyadh and Jeddah. And then we've got those sort of new develop uh, new. There's a new PIF company that's coming in to set up and make some of these second tier cities around Saudi Arabia more visitable and and sort of develop them commercially. Right. So there's a lot happening locally for t- tourism in Saudi Arabia, and then it's uh, globally. It's just huge. I mean, it's crazy too, Richard. Air airfare and airplanes are uh, just enormously expensive now, and yet hotels are not. But Airbnb is struggling globally because people are not really getting what they want. I've been reading a lot about that on Twitter this week. Um, just so much going on. So you're right. This that they would hold the WTTC would hold this in Riyadh is a huge deal and it's cool. Yeah, yeah. And again, it's in keeping with Saudi Arabia going and basically putting his hat into uh, throwing his hat into the ring for any number of marquee events, showcase events. You know, mm-hmm. from from the you know Expo 2030 to the World Cup to Asian games, to uh, Asian winter games, to everything, you know, let's, let's come and do it here in Saudi. Mm-hmm. It'll be interesting to see if this is the location they've chosen to launch their new airline. I don't know if that was, we talked about that RIA, but um, that, that's coming. Yeah. The, that's supposed to be coming this month, actually. Yeah. So I wonder if they're going to do it at this event or they've got some special thing planned, but um should be cool. Richard. Yet, a, yet another of our, you know, we have so many options with Yellas, you know, because that, that airline is, they're poaching all sorts of it. You know, I, I saw that. So, <laughs> anyway, sorry. That's, that's we'll m- save more that. stuff. We'll save that for next week. <laughs> <laughs> Richard, really good episode. Thank you very much. Well done. Thank you. Well done yourself. This is great.